everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take the deepest dive possible into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 41, and I have on Professor Brad Gregory, who is a historian and a specialist in the era of the Protestant Reformation. Now, before you turn off this podcast because the Protestant Reformation either sounds totally alien to you or you vaguely remember it as a period in history and think it might be really boring. Don't do that. Don't. This podcast is fantastic. I love the conversation we have. And it's also about something that's incredibly important, incredibly important for understanding understanding the modern world. Perhaps one of the most important things you can possibly look at if you want to understand why our world is in the shit that it's in today. It's not the only thing, of course, but uh, it's very important. Uh, Professor Gregory and I happen to share the opinion that the Protestant Reformation is a hugely impactful era time period uh, for today's world. So very briefly, before we jump into it with the professor, The Protestant Reformation was a time period from the early 1500s to the later 1600s, more or less, uh, during which people who, you know, throughout the Middle Ages leading up to this time, many people had started to really want to reform the church, uh, but they never really got any wind under them, so to speak. Uh, They never really took off. Usually they were... um, burned at the stake or, or something, right? Um, the rebellions were, were quashed or the questioning, or it was integrated into the church and the church say, stayed a solitary church and it just took these reforms in stride, right? So, um, but around the 1500s, uh, these movements, in part because the printing press had recently been d- developed and so all of a sudden books were being printed and people were learning to read, People turned away from the authority of the church and church leaders in understanding their worlds and how to be religious and started to say, you know what, what if we read the Bible ourselves? What if we interpret it ourselves? And then everybody's interpreting it differently. And instead of the single church becoming a new version, a better version of itself, you have a multiplying of many, many different churches, which is how Protestantism is born. And this is why it's called the Protestant Reformation. Now, this had a huge impact, a huge downstream impact on our morality, uh, on our worldviews, on our spending habits. Um, Professor Gregory and I talk a fair bit on the podcast. He has some brilliant insights into how this splintering of worldviews during the Protestant Reformation led to an individualism and fed uh, capitalism and turned a lot of our spiritual longing towards consumerism, which is very fascinating and important. Uh, so, uh, yeah, crucially important, uh, things such as I mentioned consumerism, um, our morality, the way that, uh, our relativism, you know, this idea that truth is very relative. This all springs from what happened in, in the 1500s and in Western Europe, which is just um, fascinating and so important. You know, if we really, if we want to understand our world, if we want to come up with uh, better ways to move forward, then we really need to understand what the options are, how we got this way. Um, Yeah. So that is what we are going uh, to talk about today. I'll read you a little bit about uh, Professor Gregory. Uh, Brad Stephen Gregory holds the Dorothy G. Griffin Chair in the Department of History at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, 
Gregory is a full professor of history at Notre Dame, where he is the director of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Studies. Together with Randall Zachman, Gregory also serves as the North American editor of the Archive for Reformation History. Professor Gregory received a bachelor's degree in history from Utah State University, a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the Higher Institute of Philosophy of the Catholic University of Leuven, Belgium, a master's degree in history from the University of Arizona, and a PhD in history from Princeton. That's a lot of degrees. So, um, and his books are fantastic. The Unintended Reformation is the one we talk about a lot in the podcast today. He has another book titled Rebel in the Ranks, which is a slightly uh, less long <laughs> um, version of the book that is uh, really great as well. And so I will link to those in the show notes. I do definitely recommend checking them out if you like history or like understanding why our world the way it is, is the way it is. Thank you so much for tuning in. That's all I have for you. Introduction wise, you know where to get at me if you have any questions, comments, concerns um, about this podcast or any other. You can hashtag Naked Humanity or you can at me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, Stephanie Ruper. Okay, thank you so much. Here we go with Professor Brad Gregory. Okay, um, thank you. Welcome, Professor Gregory. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, uh, on the show. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, um, like I have indicated to you, and I think um, will say many times when when I introduce this podcast later, uh, I find the Protestant Reformation to be so important. It's half of this whiteboard behind me. Um, it's got a big section in my next book, although your book on it, which I just tried to read, is like 587 pages. It's, it's, it's a lengthy book, yes. <laughs> something like that. But it's... it's, it's um, it's so important. So, um, first, thank you for, for doing that work. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you. For, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your gratitude. If that, if that's uh, not too meta, <laughs> uh, no, nothing is, nothing is too meta on this podcast. That's, for sure. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, uh, I want to jump right into it because I have a feeling this is going to be one, going to be one of those podcasts where there's all this ground we want to cover and you get through 80% Right. And like, you know, <laughs> and then sure. you get to the end. Yeah. Sure. So, um, one of the arguments that you make, or the overarching argument, I guess, is that this one historical period that we often talk about uh, actually has a really momentous impact on, on the world that we see today. And so, I'm wondering if you could highlight for us um, some of the phenomena in our culture today. Uh, for good or for evil, you know, that, uh, that we can perhaps attribute to or find causes or elements of, you know, several hundred years ago. Right. Um, I mean, in a way, so that's in, in a certain sense, that's, you know, asking for a kind of encapsulation or a summary of the, of, of the book as a whole, sure. which is difficult. But if I, I guess if I had to, to start, I would say that the, the, the guiding idea behind the book is that the, a combination of an extraordinarily wide range of different commitments, values, uh, approaches to making sense of the world, um, and, and, and so forth, or what I call in, in a shorthand way, ideological hyperpluralism in the book, okay. <laughs> combined with a hegemonic institutional structure of, especially in the Western world, world, modern liberal democratic states and um, 
uh, inescapable sovereignty. I mean, everybody is you're you're within the structures of one or another uh, sovereign nation. In addition to uh, consumerist capitalism, there, there being no real way to step outside of those. This combination, extraordinarily wide ranging. Um, diverse commitments to all sorts of cross-cutting competing values um, and, and, and meanings, and hegemonic inescapable institutions. That combination is the long-term unintended, unintended from the perspective of the 16th century, outcome of attempts to deal with the uh, combination of the, the unresolved um, uh, doctrinal disagreements and the consequences of the religio-political conflicts, better known as the wars of religion, um, during the 16th and the, and the first half of the 17th century. So that's the basic idea. So the reason why the book is, is called The Unintended Reformation is because, of course, protagonists like Martin Luther or John Calvin or lesser figures in the 16th century did not at all envision or hope for or want their attempts to reform the one and only Latin Christendom to issue forth uh, in an eventual widespread secularization of individualistic, capitalist, acquisitive uh, uh, society. But the religious conflicts of the Reformation era, and I insist on that throughout, the, I, I'm, I'm definitely not making an argument that there's some kind of unilateral or one directional um, relationship between Protestantism and modernity. That's, a, that's another kind of argument that some other scholars have made. It's yeah. about the unresolved conflicts of that period precipitating modern philosophy and the Enlightenment in its, in its different forms. Because if you can't agree about what God's uh, revelation means within Christianity, well, presumably then you've got to turn to something that, at least ostensibly, everyone shares in common, namely reason. Mm -hmm. You can't really understand, for example, modern foundationalist philosophy from Francis Bacon and, and René Descartes in the 17th century, all the way up, I would say, into the 20th century, without connecting it to Christianity is clearly, right, it's not coming together by the time of the English Revolution or the Thirty Years' War any more than it had in the beginning of the 16th century in Germany. So you've got to turn to reason alone. But of course, uh, what, what the last, say, 30 or 40 years of anti-foundationalism and, and postmodern philosophical critiques of that whole modern philosophical project have, have argued, and to my mind persuasively, is that it has failed. I mean, there is not a consensus. There is not a consensus in moral philosophy. There's not a consensus in political philosophy. There's not a consensus in metaphysics. There's not a consensus in, in philosophical anthropology. So in the same way that the Protestant uh, rallying cry, scripture alone, is a way to reform Christianity in the church, led to an unintended pluralism and unresolved disagreements about which Protestant church, which interpretation of scripture, which notion of the sacraments, model of the church, etc. So too, unintentionally, with respect to modern philosophy. So modern philosophy has, in a sense, replicated in a rationalist register what Protestantism in the 16th and 17th century sought to do in a, in a kind of biblical interpretative register. So that's some of the some of the things that are in the book. There's a lot more to it because it's six long chapters, each of which takes a different important domain that's connected to this, whether the emergence of uh, uh, modern consumerism and capitalism, the secularization of knowledge or the way in which states um, control and dictate terms to churches, um, uh, the, 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 the 
the wide range of different attempts to answer what I call in the book life questions, the basic questions every all of us ask. How should I live? What should I care about? What's true, et cetera. So anyway, that's I, I clearly could go on nattering about this um, in response to your initial question, but I should probably be quiet so you can ask another one. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll natter for sure. So first, I will uh, attempt to summarize your summary. So basically, extremely basically, uh, we live in a world with a huge plurality of viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and these all have to exist under like a single nation state. That's right. Um, and, and this actually came about from people a few hundred years ago. That's right. Trying to actually just reform one view. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're widespread. And everybody who is a conscientious Christian in the in the in the higher the late Middle Ages recognizes there are serious problems that need attention and reform within the church. This is not new. I mean, Martin Luther is not the first one to come along and say, you know what, there's the problems here and they need to be tended to. Mm-hmm. Attempts to to close the gap between Christianity's prescriptions and its practices, right? Its its ideals and 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 its realities had been underway for centuries before Luther. The big the big difference with Luther is that when push comes to shove, he basically um, he, he basically says, well, the ideals themselves are the wrong ideals, that many of the central claims about what the established church is are wrong. And here's what they should be instead. And, you know, he's got his interpretation of that. But, uh, yeah, that's that's in a, in a, in a nutshell. Um what you what you mentioned is and so ways have to be ways eventually have to be created to permit people who believe incompatible things about the most important aspects of human life to coexist and what that means among other things is what i say in the book uh, appropriating a, a a term from uh the great economic thinker Karl polanyi mm-hmm. disembedding religion from the way in which it had been connected to all the other domains of life, not only in the Middle Ages, but also into the Reformation era. So religion becomes something about your interior beliefs, your preferred form of collective worship. You're part of a community uh, of faith in most instances and whatever individual devotional practices you might prefer. Catholics might like to say the rosary. Protestants might go to Bible study, whatever the case. But what religion definitely is not as we move into the modern era it's something that is intended to shape all of society. It's not going to dictate terms to the market. It's not going to tell politicians how they should rule. And it's not going to dictate the wider terms for the society and the culture in any kind of prescriptive way. So that's a huge change. Right. And it's also not going to be some sort of unifying nope. framework under which we all operate. And I think we, we, we do tend to, I think, radically underestimate or just not even be aware of the fact that like how different life must have been when everybody sort of generally assented to the same worldview. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, the, there, um, there are a couple, a couple qualifications of that because I think there are important ways in which um, certainly through the 19th century and important ways into the 20th century, mm-hmm. the, I would call the kind of um, continuing religious culture of respective countries um, even those like the United States that didn't, that never had an established church still continued to have an identif- sort of an identifiably, um, substantive religious culture, even though 
there were protections in place for people to dissent and, and believe other things. If you think, for example, about the, the lingering significance of the ways in which the Church of England continued to right, influence national culture and so forth deep into the 20th century and Anglophone Protestant culture of a sort of, um, I would say, broadly reformed inspired caste in the United States, certainly uh, was very important in the United States throughout the 19th and into the 20th century. So there, so there are aspects of, of, of that that you can certainly point to. Um, it's not until I think we get, especially um, in, in the case of uh, uh, most European countries. It's not until we get deeper into the 20th century, and especially after the Second World War, that we really start to see this um, uh, the, the trajectories that were already underway accelerate, as it were. And so now we, we arrive at a situation where there's a, there's a much greater degree of um, ideological pluralism in certain respects, certainly with respect to these kinds of things. Mm. What, I, what I would suggest in, in the book, um, and I, I make this argument, is that there is a sense in which we, we all do participate uh, to very extents, or virtually all of us. I should make some exceptions, because one of the things I'm concerned to do in the book is make sure that we there, there are ways of talking about including everyone. And if you do that, then you really do have to make exceptions for, say, the members of ascetic Catholic religious orders even today. But overwhelmingly, virtually everyone participates in an acquisitive capitalist um, consumer society to varying degrees. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to step outside that, although one could argue that current um, radical environmental initiatives, you know, vis-a-vis climate change are, are actually attempts to try to deal with that in a, in a contemporary idiom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we also, I think that that's so fascinating and so important because we tend to assume, obviously, that the way our current societies are, are sort of the natural way of doing things. Of course. And uh, and there are so many layers of things that we presume are natural, including basic metaphysical presuppositions. You know, they underlie our science, our philosophies, actually reading your book. And I've encountered these ideas before, and I don't know why the precisely the way you pitched them, like finally got to me in the way it was supposed to. But reading about the medieval metaphysics and the, um, you know, the Dunscotus and the um, yes. Occam and stuff, feeling like, oh, wow. You know, if yeah. you just like take this one metaphysical idea about God being a being instead of an act, say, exactly, then your an entire set of views about yep. everything can literally change. And we just, because we are unaware of these changes, you know, exactly, th- then we have no way to understand how our world could be different. Exactly. That's so well put. I mean, you, you really understood, <laughs> you understand there, one of the right. real. <laughs> Because what is what is sort of and that was that was really the the impetus for for writing this book. I mean, I I was at work on a much more conventional kind of narrative history of of Christianity in the Reformation era. But it was this realization in several different scholars that I was reading different kinds of, of thinkers too, change that occurred in the distant past and became embedded and taken for granted, regarded as natural, to to use your word continue to re- remain at work at now as kind of unquestioned assumptions, people aren't aware of them. So they don't realize that there are fundamentally different intellectual alternatives to things like conceiving the relationship between morality and politics or the individual and community or God and, uh, and the natural world. 
Um, yeah, so maybe we can dive into some of those unquestioned, unquestioned assumptions. You mentioned three, and I tried to write them down. Um, <laughs> so um, say the relationship between God and the world, right? Maybe right. <laughs> it's the most, quote unquote, most basic of these. Um, what what was sort of the the idea before and how has it become the way it is now? Yeah, this I mean, this is really the subject matter of, of chapter one. And even there in the book, it's it's done in quite a compressed way. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a it's a difficult I mean, and it's difficult for, for I think a lot of people, particularly those who aren't, if I could put it this way, sort of metaphysically inclined to to think about this because. Um, the traditional view, and this incidentally is a view that's not only characteristic of Christianity, but in its respective ways found in other religious traditions as well, certainly in Judaism and Islam. And one could even argue in its respective ways in in Hinduism or Buddhism, if if you make the sort of, um, you know, mutatis mutandis um, changes in language and conceptualization. The idea is that, you know, God is, uh, is, not, um, is not an object for investigation. He's not like anything else um, that we encounter in our experience or could encounter in our experience. Now, this and is, a, the, sorry, this is... A tradition, the traditional view. Yes, okay. Traditional view, This and this is related to God's transcendence. It's related to God's, uh, the necessity of God's existence. It's also, it's also related to the, the fact that accounting for existence per se for being as such is not itself a matter of empirical investigation and could never in principle be argued through an empirical investigation. In other words, science will never be able to explain why there is something rather than nothing. And that should absolutely not be confused with questions about the character of the Big Bang. Mm. Because being as such, I mean, the, 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 the instantaneous, right, nanosecond after the beginning of the Big Bang is just as much a matter of being rather than non-being, mm-hmm. as is our hugely differentiated universe 13 billion plus years after the Big Bang. This understanding of an incomprehensible source for all that is, a sustaining source for all that is, without which nothing else could exist or could, could, could come to be, is the metaphysical understanding of a transcendent God that underlies, in one way or another, these, these other traditional religious conceptions, including in Christianity. You have a certain kind of articulation of it, say, in the Greek church fathers. You have it in Augustine in a certain way. You have it in different medieval theologians and so forth. What happens in, um, I mean, again, I don't want to necessarily get into the weeds on this stuff because it's complex. And, and, and it, another reason it's so inaccessible to most people is because it's, it's couched in the technical terms of scholastic philosophy and theology. Um, but basically, um, Dun Scotus, a Franciscan in the late, very late 13th and beginning of the 14th century, correctly realizes that if God is radi- this, this radically other, there's no way to say anything about him directly on the basis of reason alone. And so Scotus basically says, well, we have to be able to say at least something about God. So we have to be able to talk about God in a way that in a certain sense, uses the same categories, the same understanding of reason, the same ways of, t- of talking about everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, you can say that you're still preserving God transcendence. God is still the greatest being. God is higher than all the beings. He's different than every. Uh, and, 
But the difficulty is if you're talking about God as a highest being among other beings, the danger is that he is implicitly being brought within the same, as it, as it were, uh, metaphysical set as all of creation. That becomes very explicit as the later Middle Ages go on and certainly into the early modern period. So that the time you get by the time you get to somebody like Leibniz, right, classical rationalist philosopher of the 17th, early 18th century. I mean, Leibniz just flat out talking about God as the highest being among others, you know, and these are his attributes and his perfections and so forth. Now, that's one aspect. Now, let's now let's also talk about the relationship between supernatural and natural causality. So supernatural causality in some sense or another, obviously it's a part of, uh, certainly a part of Christianity, the central mystery of Christianity, the right incarnation, resurrection of Christ, incomprehensible apart from some understanding of supernatural influence causality. So it's, it's got to be understood in some respect. Mm-hmm. How is, is God's relationship to the world and supernat- the supernatural related to the natural? What happens when you combine an understanding of God as a highest being among others, right, within a total set now that includes God and creation, with an either-or understanding of natural and supernatural causality as we get into the 17th centuries? By the time we get to Newton, in principle, all natural effects, right, are attributable to a natural cause. Mm-hmm. And that means that you've paved the way for the famous comment by Laplace to Napoleon at the very beginning of the 19th century, right? When he says, and you know this because of your own work about religion and science, right? I have no need for that hypothesis. I can explain everything in the natural world at whatever level. And of course, the subsequent continuation of science, at least in the kind of popular understanding, has extended that view. Science can explain everything. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the subatomic level, the intergalactic level, uh, biological in- organisms, biological ecosystems, whatever the case may be. What science can't do, though, although only metaphysically inclined scientists, I think, would realize this, is account for why there's something rather than, than nothing to begin with. Why, why and how is it that uh, existence is here at all? Um, so that's a little bit behind. I mean, the, obviously, the chapter is laid out in a, in a different way. But what, what's important is that that shift in the late Middle Ages is then taken up. The other key, and this is why the Reformation matters so much, the, the kind of particularities and the substantive character of Christianity, what makes Christianity Christianity in terms of its understanding of the Trinity, incarnation, the role of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the sacraments, all of those things. All of those things are dependent in critical ways from you know, what is referred to the deposit of revelation, right? The scriptures, the Bible. If you can't agree about all that stuff, well, all you've got then left to talk about God in the natural world are these philosophical categories, right? That are now being inherited from the late Middle Ages and taken up. And you're talking about God and creation in terms of a highest being in relationship to creation and in terms of this either or relationship between natural and supernatural causality. So those are some of the intellectual underpinnings that, in a sense, prepare the ground for what becomes the exclusionary anti um, I, I would say the sort of anti-metaphysical or anti-God bent of mm-hmm. modern science. Methodologically, it makes perfect sense. But metaphysically, no one can do without the, 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 the positing of whether you call it God or not. That's in a certain sense, from a philosophical point of view, that doesn't matter. But it's impossible to account for being as such. And um, right. the fact that there is anything at all 
without positing a, a source of it. Right. Um, Sorry, I'm going on and on. This is probably no, no, way no. too long. <laughs> no, this is, this is important. And you are articulating it beautifully, which I appreciate so much. It's, it's sometimes it's very hard to get guests to like explain their terms. Uh, <laughs> we're doing great. Um, so a couple of things. One quick question. This does philosophically then, right? We have this understanding that we can study all of nature and God is now included in that um, and either must be supernatural or not. So most people would be like, oh, well, obviously God doesn't act in the world, but technically, mm-hmm. philosophically, the question of miracles is still kind of like up in the air. <laughs> yeah, well, the, I mean, there's, there's no way, there's, there's in, I mean, in principle, no way to exclude the possibility of miracles on the basis okay. of, of science. And certainly people make claims all the time about inexplicable phenomena, right? Um, certainly you know, overnight cures of, you know, tumor disappears inexplicably, a raging cancerous tumor. And, you know, three days later, it's shriveled to almost nothing and the person recovers. Right. Things, like that, things like this happen. They're documented. Now, what science can't do in principle, and it, and it shouldn't do, is say that that was a miracle. Because it's, it's guiding framing assumptions are naturalist in their metaphysics and they're empiricist in their, in their epistemology. And so all a scientist could do is say, you know, basically we have no, we've got no explanation for this. We, we, we can't account for that. Right. Yeah. It's, there's, there's absolutely no way though, to rule out the possibility of, of even let's call them, you know, sort of singular spectacular alleged miracles, like the resurrection of a, a crucified man coming back from the dead. Sure. Um, because to rule out, to rule out on the basis of science that right, no miracles have ever occurred would require based on the methods of science, the observation of any and all natural phenomena that have ever existed anywhere in the universe. And obviously that's way beyond the epistemological capacity of um, an empirical investigative capacities of, of the sciences. The exclusion of miracles a priori depends on a, an ideological commitment to the impossibility of miracles. Right. So, I mean, the people that think somehow, you know, David Hume said the last word on this um, question really quite mistaken. Hume presupposes that miracles are impossible and then says, well, you've got to come up with, you know, evidence um, Mm -hmm. that shows that they actually occur. But if you but if in principle you say, well, there can't be such a thing, then it really forecloses the question to begin with. Mm -hmm. So the the um, I've I've actually written some uh, things about this. And in fact, I think I mentioned it even in passing in uh, in the unintended reformation. So it's. the, the impossibility of miracles is a, a kind of methodological postulate of the modern sciences. It is absolutely not something that could ever be shown or demonstrated on the basis of science, on science's own investigative methods. Right. So I, I bring that up only because I, I think it's a pretty comprehensible example of ways in which we have these presuppositions that aren't necessarily true. And Hume, Definitely. right, Hume made this argument obviously miracles are false, right? Sort of because he's a part of, was inherited. He inherited this tradition of, you know, viewing the world in an entirely naturalistic frame in which God is or is not a being in it. Um, I have often heard the argument that the development of this worldview, you know, this metaphysics is actually in some ways um, part of the cause of the development of science. I I don't know if this is something that's worth delving into. 
You know, I think I, yes. Now in, in the sense that, in the sense that if, if, if the methodological right presupposition is um, we are going to treat all phenomena as if they were exclusively natural. Mm-hmm. That it seems to me does give one um, intellectual leverage on the development of, of understanding um, the phenomena that you're investigating as existing in a purely naturalist uh, framework. And, and that is a spur to the development of scientific inquiry and discovery itself. I, I, I think that's right. Because then you're not wondering, well, is that, you know, weird? was this, you know, the, uh, was God involved in that in a specific way and so forth? And so from a theological point of view, it seems to me, it involves rethinking the way in which one understands, for example, the relationship between natural and supernatural. Not that the supernatural is absent, but, you know, is it really kind of directly influencing certain things? And also um, um, the way in which one understands, for example, phenomena or traditional theological um, categories like divine providence. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, there are, there, there, in, in um, the scholastic tradition, particularly um, in the thought of Thomas Aquinas, I mean, this, this relationship is what is uh, um, articulated in the difference between primary and secondary causality. But m- most people's eyes glaze over when you start to s- talk in these terms because they, they, they just don't know how to think in, in Aristotelian scholastic categories. But the idea that somehow that all natural phenomena could be, as it were, going on as if, right, God were not present, and yet always there, God is present because all things are in being, right? They're all sustained in being, and they could not, they couldn't exist without God sustaining active being is a way of thinking about the relationship between natural and supernatural that doesn't interfere or, or change any of the inquiries or the results of the findings of science. So that's just one. And and of course there are, see, this is, there's so many problems because there are, there are sophisticated philosophers of science and and theologians who, who can articulate and do articulate this very well today. Mm -hmm. But of course they're almost never part of the conversation in um, Anglo-American departments of philosophy, with some exceptions, um, and certainly not more widely known in, say, the social sciences or, or, or humanities or, or the natural sciences. So that's a problem. Right. It's well, problem. because you're almost sort of default excluded from the discussion because, you know, at first glance, exactly, your, your worldview looks so alien. And if you exactly. happen to be somebody who likes to go to church and no has Right. And you have or you have this like really sophisticated understanding of metaphysics in ways in which God exists, you know. Um, No, this is and this is a real this is a problem. This I one of the things that the upshots of the the final chapter of the book on the secularization of knowledge is about is about this problem, the fragmentation of knowledge and the way in which these you were talking about before, these sort of hardwired assumptions of things as being, well, that's just obvious, or that's just natural, or anybody, right? Well, we don't think such and such now. Well, the question always is, who are we? Because there are some people who don't think that and can articulate alternatives in really sophisticated ways. But the fact of the matter is, most natural scientists, humanistic scholars, social scientists aren't interested in, in, in religion. They're not philosophically sophisticated, 
And uh, they're, they're simply not interested in exploring either historically, theologically, or philosophically these kinds of issues. Yeah. And so they, you know, they're, we're, we're all, we all tend to, unless you get really explicit about your own assumptions and where they came from, you know, we tend to carry on within the assumptions that guide our lives and, and um, right, allow us to uh, get on with them. Yeah, well, I think it's really important for people who are, say, um, spiritual seekers or struggling with understanding why yeah. they're nihilistic or the secular world. I personally like uh, hated religion my whole life. I grew up thinking it was for stupid people. Yeah, it was in the sciences, and I realized in my early twenties that I had rejected religion without ever considering it. Yeah. So I printed out some articles. And I read a couple, and I think the first one I read was by, um, oh, what's his name? Plantiga or something? Oh, yeah, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah. and uh, Definitely not a stupid man. No. And I got to the <laughs> end, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, that was brilliant. And, yeah. And, and so we really, if, I don't know, if we really want to, like, move forward with uh, ideas and with spiritualities and moralities or whatever, you know, all this stuff that we have to talk about that are like truly as comprehensive, you know, really understanding, then we have to be able to peer behind our, our suppositions. And absolutely. Um, and I, and I think that applies to everyone. I, I would say for religious believers too. I mean, uh -huh. part of what it means, it seems to me to become an educated person is to be, you know, um, self-inquiring, you know, se yeah. self-aware of, of what it is that one, one thinks, why one thinks it, what the evidence is for it. How does that relate to other, um, concerns and and what are what are its implications so um well that's that's greatly to your credit because you know lots of people don't get beyond that and i think a huge problem too i'm sure you've encountered this many many times in your own research and reflection is the way in which the category religion functions usually rhetorically i would say rhetorically in the sense of all you have to do is say religion it's and it's a kind of you know it's a kind of uh, buzzword that simply means all that is retrograde, superstitious, mm -hmm. anti-intellectual, and unsophisticated. And we don't like those people, and politically they're not like us either. And so please, please sweep them onto the other side of our Manichaean worldview. But the fact of the matter is some, some religious believers are incredibly naive. They, they're not reflective about their beliefs. And let's be frank, hold reprehensible, horrible uh, views and some, I don't, I don't think somebody's, uh, views or actions should be dignified or respected simply because they claim that they're religious. At the same time, there are other peoples whose, as you were just saying a moment ago, I mean, there are religious thinkers and, and religious people who are absolutely every bit as intellectually sophisticated, if not more so than, um, than the best secular thinkers. Um, someone like, I don't know if you've come across the the American uh, Orthodox Christian theologian, David Bentley Hart, um, he is fantastic. And his book, The Experience of God, I think is the best kind of introduction to these, uh, these issues. You haven't read them before, I can tell from your, yeah, you'll, you'll like it. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I really appreciate that. And we also like, there is a, my, our, my poor listeners, I talk about this all the time. Like it's, <laughs> It's like, the, it's the thing I talk about, um, you know, part, there's a chapter in my dissertation on, on Sam Harris. Um, oh yeah. And, you know, there's definitely like a secular hubris, um, 
but we all, we all need to, we all need to peer behind those things. Okay. So, uh, I don't want to get too far away from the moment of the Protestant reformation. Oh no, sorry. But that's the thing. It leads into everything. It's me. It's, It's my job. (laughs) It's my job. Um, I know, but it it goes everywhere. So, um, and I want to get to consumerism too. So uh, very generally speaking, okay, uh, perhaps I should have done this a long time ago. Protestant Reformation. It's over the course of, would you say like a hundred years, 200 years, 300 years? (laughs) I'm not really sure where um, basically... Uh, the Catholic church lost its like totalized grip on what people believe. Uh, And, and so sprang forth all these spiritualities. Now, the interesting thing about your book, I think is it demonstrates how spiritualities or what different religious forms multiplied while at the same time creating these like underlying, these new underlying assumptions that we, that we carry forth. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, so I, um, so the, the, the conventional, um, sort of anniversary starting date of, of the reformation and, and all I'm, 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 I'm laughing in part because those of us who are reformation historians, um, we got our 15 minutes of, of Warholian fame a couple of years ago during the 2017, 2017 yeah. 500th uh, anniversary of, of Martin Luther's uh, writing the 95 theses in, in late 1517. So the very that, that would be kind of taken as the beginning, the traditional beginning point of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, it's here. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 I, I usually think then, and, and certainly this, the, the remainder of the 16th century is uh, a period in which the Reformation starts. Um, it has a, an unexpected, rapid, uh, kind of um, almost unrestrained growth in the cities um, of, uh, of Central Europe, Germany and, and Switzerland in the 1520s and the early 1530s. It spreads to other countries, some of which embrace it, some of which reject it. But what, what uh, becomes characteristic of um, all of, of Western Europe is this now contentious and adversarial relationship between those political regimes that have adopted the Protestant Reformation, either in a Lutheran or a Reformed Protestant form, and those that have remained or have uh, chosen, again, having been Protestant, have embraced Roman Catholicism. And of course, because religion is so important, because it's understood to be critical, not only for people's hope of the afterlife, but also in the way in which rulers are going to be themselves accountable to God, the way in which society ought to be rightly ordered, the way in which God wants to be worshipped, um, it is highly prioritized and leads to, um, it is certainly a factor in many conflicts in the 16th and through the 17th century. So I, I usually talk about the Reformation era as being circa 1520 to let's say around 1650. You could push it to 1660 if you want to for England. That's when the, the, with the restoration, because those two decades of the 1640s and 50s, the decades of the English Revolution, religion is, ab- and li- the relationship between religion and politics is absolutely central. You cannot understand those decades without it. So too, 1648 is the end of the Thirty Years' War, the, the largest, the, the longest standing, the most destructive of all the, the continental um, religio-political conflicts. In terms of the Reformation's continuing influence, though, we could talk about, right, the history of Protestantism, which, of course, endures all the way to the present day. Mm-hmm. What's, what's, it seems to me the, the, the key to understanding one crucially unintended part of what becomes called Protestantism 
is that its foundational principle, Scripture alone, the Word of God, as the final sole authority for Christian faith and life, is simultaneously and from the very beginning a central bone of contention. Right. And this has huge implications, not just for different interpretations of the Bible and its relationship to the formation of different Protestant traditions, but also later on for the way in which, for example, hermeneutic theory develops in uh, modern German philosophy in, in, in the Anglo-American world, too. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about the interpretation of texts, right? Yeah. All those, those questions about how do you interpret texts, how do you weigh them, how do you right, relate different passages or different different components of an oeuvre, which in a certain sense, right, the, the books of the, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are, all those questions are forged in the Reformation era. And then they're carried forward and transformed in, in interesting ways in modern literature, too. So that's another way in which um, uh, the Reformation continues to be uh, to, continues to be influential. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, <laughs> <laughs> to sum your sum, so uh, the um, Luther and, and many other people uh, sort of began to say, we need we're going to interpret the Bible instead of listening to church figures. And I think you do a brilliant job in your book, sort of telling us like why people questioned the godliness of church figures, you know, um, it, people like literally just wanted to reform Christianity and, but they couldn't turn to these authorities who seemed pretty corrupt. <laughs> so yeah. they start reading the Bible for themselves. And all of a sudden there's like, everybody's got their own idea and people start fighting about it. And yeah. then I, I, you mentioned this briefly, but I want to just bring it up again because it's important. This is kind of how we developed the idea of sexual, secular nation states because people, if you want people to get along, you have to stop performing your religion publicly and turn it exactly. into something that you do internally. That's right. And the, and the, in the Reformation era, mm -hmm. Christianity of one sort or another, whether it's Reformed Protestantism or Lutheranism or Roman Catholicism, Mm -hmm. is is a crucial, as it were, junior partner, along with sovereign rulers. That is, they 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 collaborate and cooperate with um, members of the clergy in their respective territories. Because, I mean, let's face it: if if the clergy are successful in catechizing, instructing, preaching to, and changing the behavior of good, obedient Christians, right? Mm -hmm. Virtuous Christians make good, obedient subjects. So this is this this phenomenon is known in the scholarship as confessionalization. In other words, the inculcation of a particular religious identity, along with those of other people in a in a widespread territory, such that people behave the way that they're they're supposed to be uh, behave as Christians, and simultaneously, right, constitute good obedient subjects for the sovereign. That's the ideal. You know, it's realized spottily to some extent, as, as these things always are. But this has been a very important argument in how do we account for the long-term transformation from kind of rambunctious, unruly, fairly undisciplined uh, medieval uh, people, on the one hand, to rule-abiding citizens in modern nation-states. And part of that story is confessionalization of the Reformation era that continues then into the, into the 18th and, and even later in the 19th century. Right. So, and by, sorry, by confessionalization, you mean people sort of turning religion into a faith that they believe and then hold private. 
Yeah, it's I mean, confessionalization is is really that the collaborative efforts by political authorities and church authorities working together to 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 inculcate a certain um, combination of beliefs, religious mm-hmm. practices, dispositions and ways of um, of behaving on the part of the, of the of the population. And certainly internalizing those beliefs is, mm-hmm. is part of the objective. Interesting. Um, so. I actually last last week while I was reading this book, I haven't I can't remember the last time I did this. I read a sentence that I thought was so fantastic. (laughs) I put it on Twitter Um, and I don't remember the words exactly. But you said so basically what happened was and here we'll pivot to closing with talking about consumerism. Basically, what happened was Catholics and Protestants stopped fighting and decided to go shopping. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you like that line. I, I like that line, too. And I've used it a lot in talks that I've given um, yeah. as well. And that's yeah, that's a, that's an important part of the book. And it, and it relates to something that I said earlier in response to one of your questions about the sort of de facto um, unifying ideology, if you will, among mm-hmm who hyper pluralistically believe all kinds of different things about God or don't or whatever. And that is our participation as consumers in um, a world capitalist um, system. Um, And that's the story I tell uh, largely in chapter five uh, of the book. It's the only chapter title that I make any pretenses at all to being halfway clever. I love this chapter title. I wrote it down in my notes so I could mention it in the podcast. Do you want to say it? You should you you say, say it. it. It's, your, it's your title. Okay. Manufacturing the goods life. It's beautiful. So, <laughs> but that encapsulates what, what I'm trying to talk about there. And that's, that is really, it, it's, it's, it's the story of how, and this too really goes to something that questions our, our, our uh, sort of instinctive, um, ways of thinking about the economy is just sort of something natural and people Mm -hmm. want stuff and people make stuff and people buy stuff and that's how we're right happy and so forth but the extent to which it not only in ancient but also medieval and even into the 16th century um economics is regarded as subordinate to ethics it is embedded within social relationships it's it's subject to political control and it's absolutely regarded as of a piece with the traditional virtues Mm -hmm. prudence generosity uh, self-denial and so forth what the those those religious political conflicts of the reformation era do is give an opening as it were to a different basically a different way of thinking about what the objective of human life ought to be mm. it ought not to be to follow god's will in the hopes of eternal life it it should rather be to seek to enjoy one's own self-determined pleasures and pursuits here and now in relationship to whatever objects and material goods might be able to mediate those things. Mm. And that's what I mean. They, they, they don't entirely stop fighting about religion, but there's a shift starting in the, in the Dutch Republic in the early 17th century. The, as so was so often the case in, in the 17th uh, century, the English look to the Dutch, uh, are inspired by them and scale up what the Dutch were doing. Um, the Netherlands um, was a very strange country at the time. It wasn't a monarchy. It was decentralized and mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of natural resources, didn't have a large population, but built the world's first commercial trading empire. The The English, uh, by contrast, and after the union with Scotland in the beginning of the 18th century, the British um, have a powerful monarchy, a worldwide empire, political empire, and they wed the same lessons to that. 
the next stage in the long-term process, if you will, is of course the the um, those pesky North American English colonies decide at a certain point, you know, they don't want to deal with what they regard as a tyrannical king and they're going to constitute themselves as a new nation. And it's in the United States that these that that acquisitiveness becomes um, something that really defines the new nation. And it becomes something that the, I think the greatest commentator on the United States in its history, Alexis de Tocqueville, comments on with great lucidity when he comes to the United States in the early 1830s. He says here, you know, uh, you know, the, the pursuit of, of goods is the national passion. Everybody is, you know, trying to acquire more and better stuff. And so the, the modern consumerism fueled by the Internet, online shopping and all of that, I absolutely think is is of a piece and should be connected to a long term narrative about the displacement mm-hmm. of the centrality of religion and its orienting, meaning giving character in, in, in European societies to an individualistic, modern, liberal, capitalist, consumerist, self-determined, acquisitive um, way of being human. It's, um, it's, a, it's a fundamental shift. Yeah. And you can find medieval pre... I mean, I'm not, not saying it just... It started all in the 17th century. And the irony is a lot of these acquisitive practices started before the Reformation. And one could even say... Um, the medieval papacy at, when it's at Avignon in the 14th century, it's the Renaissance popes, right? They're the ones modeling acquisitiveness in the, yeah. in the, in the most grandiose ways um, in, in the pre-Reformation world, which is part of the reason why there's an objection and there is a Reformation to begin with, right? So right. These, things are, these things are all connected. Yeah, you often in the book talk about personal salvation and sort of a more collective salvation or way of organizing communities. And yeah. Yeah, I see this sort of move towards consumerism as being something that, like you mentioned, religion sort of gets squashed into a specific corner. That's right. So there's the sense in which like your personal salvation needs something, right? You've got like some holes you're trying to fill and also your your communities need something to end up you know, rallying around. And that's where your beautiful sentence comes in. They, you know, they stop fighting <laughs> and, they, and they go shopping. Right. Um, and, and that's uh, what we're still doing. Yeah. And it's really interesting because obviously we, we don't want to go back to the middle ages, you know, no, there are a lot- no absolutely not. And, and, and don't <laughs> get me, some, some of my, um, you know, reviewers or people have, have accused me of this kind of, um, you know, medieval romantic, nostalgic attitude. That, that's not part of the book at all. It's not part of the book at all. It's simply saying, here is how we have arrived at where we are mm-hmm. in ways that maybe you, reader, have not thought about before. And part of the reason you haven't thought about it is because we tend to think, well, change now happens so quickly and it's all about technology and so forth. So, you know, maybe, maybe you have to go back to like the end of World War II if you're like really going back far to try to understand <laughs> our world. Right. What, what, what the Unintended Reformation is about is saying you will not understand where we are how we got here and the character of our problems, unless you take in at least a 600 year sweep of the past. Yeah. And that's why I guess, I mean, again, I'm a historian, obviously. So I think history is important, but there's a theoretical way to articulate that, that I think is appealing to people from other disciplines. And that is simply, we are temporal beings. I mean, we exist in time and there's absolutely no way, no coherent way to deny that the present is the product of the past. 
The present is the product of the past. And we know this. We know this. It's embedded in our conversations all the time. You know, someone says, hey, Stephanie, where did you get that sweater? And you say, oh, I bought it last week at such and such, right? That's a reference to the past. There's No, I'm serious. I now, know. that's a trivial example. Or, you know, when did you come to Oxford? Oh, I came in such and such a year at this, right? So we're always talking about the past to explain the present. Just extend that principle. What is it about the present we want to understand? And what in the past do we have to refer to? How far back do we have to go? Where do we have to go? How do we connect to other things? That's really all that historians do. But we can't escape time. And the present is the product of the past. So history. And you said history became more important in your own attempts to understand the relationship between science and religion and the Mm -hmm. the aspects of scientific pursuits for certain people. Yeah, it's yes, I definitely we are at a beautiful summarizing point. So we can (laughs) we can leave it. We should leave it here. Um, Yes, this is this is important. This is the task of history. And then, of course, seeing all this change enables us to understand if we're trying to solve problems here, we need to understand alternatives. Otherwise, we're just you know, you're just instead of instead of aiming your bow and arrow right at the target, you're just kind of shooting arrows wildly. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that the problems are any <laughs> less daunting once we identify them. <laughs> Sometimes it might even be worse. Um, but you got to do it. Ignorance is bliss, but we really don't have any other uh, uh, alternative than to pursue knowledge and, and try to confront the, the, the challenges that we face, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I'm trying to do it. You're trying to do it. Thank you Correct. so much. Um, before we go, do you have anything uh, anything left you would like to say? Or is there somewhere people can find your books or what have you? Well, I mean, I, I always, uh, even though I always don't always live up to this uh, particular exhortation myself, I, I would encourage people if they're if they want to buy Unintended Reformation to do so from a brick and mortar bookstore rather than ordering it from Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, um, it's a it's a it's a complex book. Um, you know, our, our discussion is enjoyable as it's been. Can't really you know do justice to it. It's difficult even for me to summarize, and I wrote it. Uh, The other thing I would say is that uh, a couple of years ago for 2017, um, I wrote uh, a a different kind of book, but in certain respects, it it traces the same kind of explanatory arc from the Mm -hmm. the Middle Ages to the present, um, entitled Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. And that was published by Harper. So those who don't necessarily want to tackle a, a 600 page book can read this, um, 250 page book instead, if they wanted, uh, the cliff notes version. Good. Okay. And I'll, <laughs> I'll provide links to it on my media so people can okay. easily find it. Um, Great. okay. Uh, thank you again. This has been, uh, so wonderful. And thank you to everybody for, um, tuning in. I hope this was as edifying for you as it was for me. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I will as ever, uh, be back next week.